Project. Welcome to I Am My Passion Project, a companion of my digital magazine, Badass Silver Streak. I'm Lorna Nickel. I'm an artist, writer, graphic designer, thinker, a renaissance woman, if you will. This podcast is a way for me to give a voice to women over 50, like myself, a platform to discuss sexism, health and wellness, redefining beauty, and healing from betrayal trauma. Without further ado, let's dig in together and figure out ways to resist societal expectations while reimagining a world where mature women are made visible and empowered to become their own passion projects. Let's do this. Welcome to another episode of I Am My Passion Project. Today, I had the pleasure of interviewing another phenomenal multitasker and incredibly talented woman, Jen Neitzel, over a glass of wine by the fireside. It was a fireside chat, but without the fire. It was actually a little too toasty for that. Jen is a 52-year-old entrepreneur who has been many things, including the owner of DIY Lounge an independent art and craft school in support of the vibrant arts community of Portland, Oregon. That's where I know her from. I actually taught one of the classes for her school out of the art store Collage on Alberta Street many, many moons ago. Even now, years later, she continues to support the arts community by providing an exhibition space and an artist residency at the Starry Night Inn in Seaside, Oregon a business that she co-owns and runs as an innkeeper. In the interview, we talk about these things, but also so much more, including childhood trauma and how it's easy for women to fall into the role of being the giving tree. So grab a tasty beverage, sit back, and open your ears for this episode titled More Than Just a Giving Tree. I'm here with Jen Neitzel. She's the innkeeper of the Starry Night Inn. I've known Jen for several years, but we kind of were out of touch for a long time. I know her from the DIY lounge. I'm just going to have her tell you a little bit about her history in the art scene in Portland, Oregon, and maybe even beyond that, because I don't really know where you started out doing art. Lorna, thanks for having me on. Yeah, so the history is kind of like a zig and a zag for sure. It starts with me getting a degree in psychology, never taking art classes, becoming a social worker, being super like responsible and doing all the things I was supposed to do and spending every single evening, every single waking second that I wasn't working, making art because it was the only thing that made me feel calm. And then I kind of started to think, maybe I have things flipped around. Maybe I should be doing more creative things because this is way more enjoyable to me. And so then when I had my son and I decided to stay home with him, I started crocheting like crazy again, just to stay calm. For me, I really think like knitting and crocheting is like some type of meditation. It's very calming for me. And so I would just make hat after hat after hat. And everyone I knew already had so many hats. And I was like, well, I have to figure out what I'm going to do with this like big basket of hats. So eventually I had enough together that I just decided, well, maybe I'll try to sell some and see what happens. And I sold out of all my hats. Then I was like, well, gosh, I could make other things. And so then I started making more things. And 
over time, I could just see that, well, one, I was much happier doing creative endeavors. And two, I could see that, like, if there was a venue for teaching classes that artists would be able to supplement their incomes. And I knew a lot of creative people. So maybe having like a classroom space where people could teach classes would benefit the art community. So then I did that. I opened up DIY Lounge. And at one point I had something like 30 teachers. What's funny is I don't think I would have ever gone to school for business because I just don't think I could have sat through that. I don't think it would have been my cup of tea. I think I would have been bored and felt probably alienated by people who would like had like their stiff business garb on and bow ties. No, probably nobody had bow jam. ties. Yeah. Yeah. It just wouldn't have been for me. But what's been sort of ironic is I feel like through the back door of art, I've learned a lot about business. And that is what led me to, I'm actually the co-owner of Starry Night Inn. So it's myself and my business partner, Anastasia Coria. And we just decided to do this together. And it was such like a random, crazy series of events that made this happen. So first we, let's see, we talked about wanting to buy like a vacation home that maybe we would rent out. And then we talked about how if we had more rooms, that would be good. Because then like on the off season, when we're not using the beach home, we could rent it out to people. And then we thought, well, we really should have enough bathrooms for everyone. And at some point in the process, we're like, <laughs> we want a hotel. And I mean, it's only six units. It's really small. So what we ended up doing is we each took out a little bit of like home equity from our houses. And then we wrote a business plan and we presented it to a bank and we got a loan and we did it. Did you identify the location that you wanted first? Yeah. I mean, what's kind of funny is when I wrote the business plan, we were looking at a few different properties. I wrote this business plan with this PSU like night class where you can just go and write a business plan with them. And it's like a few evening classes and it was actually really awesome. And then they liked the project so much that students business students got credit for like doing tons of research for the business. Oh, for your business? Yes. Ah, uh, that's awesome. Yeah. It was really helpful and useful. Was it scary to jump into being a business owner of something that you've never done before? Yes and no. Um, one is I had been doing a home Airbnb for a couple of okay. years. So I was pretty familiar with Airbnb and also just kind of had a sense of these things. I don't think I understood how insane it was going to be when I went into it. As much as I thought I knew, I don't think I really knew. So I don't think I was that scared, but I think it's because I didn't know what I didn't know, you know? So you had your own Airbnb, but you'd never run an inn before. Right. And you, in running the inn, and starting that, you discovered that there are actually a lot of differences and challenges. A ton <laughs> of differences and challenges. Like what? I mean, like the kind of crazy things you have to deal with. Okay, for example, I managed the workman's comp 
insurance that we have to have. Mm -hmm. And it gets technical, but basically we have to look at our numbers and make sure they're right. And there's a whole process for how you do that. And this is the first year that I was like, okay, I think I know what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) Like, and that's true of a lot of things with running a business. Like when I did Airbnb, a home Airbnb, I was totally reliant on Airbnb. I didn't have to have a website. I didn't have to have booking software. I didn't have to have this whole infrastructure. Like the latest thing we just did is we have started a spa scheduling program so people can book our spa online now. And everything is like that where as much as you do and do and do, there's always like five new things that you're just like, well, I've never done that before. I have no idea how to do that. I guess I'm going to learn how to do that. But you're used to being a business owner. It seems like you have the creative side to your brain and also the technical side to your brain. Yeah, sometimes the technical side starts to shut down on me, but. (laughs) (laughs) And this is also like the first time you've had employees or have you had employees before for a business? Well, okay, I've had people who've done like contract work for me in the past, but I've never had like actual employees like w-2 sort of situation w-2s paid time Uh off all of those sorts of things you know like it's a completely different realm right and there are certain requirements with that oh yeah just all kinds of laws and regulations and did you give that person the right amount of breaks in the right order and you know all that stuff are you enjoying being an innkeeper that is such a tricky question. I would say overall, yes, I'm enjoying it. I was just saying to you before we started this, I don't know how I miss the fact that probably 70% of the job is cleaning. And that gets old. Like a, a human can only clean so much. Some people find it meditative. I'm I'm not one of them. I'd rather be crocheting. <laughs> but I do find it really rewarding to have happy customers and I do get a lot of pride out of feeling like the space is really not just clean, but there's attention to detail and thought that has gone into the preparation of the space so that it's really unique and special for people. Well, I mean, it's your space. And as an artist, it's like a concept in. So it's not just a regular hotel or motel or anything like that. It has this art bent to it that a lot of places don't. And so it's has curated rooms full of art that's actually for sale. Yeah. <laughs> and then you also have this really cool aspect to it, which is an artist residency. And that's what brought me here. And I'm super excited for the opportunity to be here doing a writing residency for a week. So I'm here from today until next Friday morning. And that is just such a cool aspect to this place, which I feel like the word needs to be spread about the specialness, the uniqueness of this place, just because of that. Cool. Yeah. So Anastasia is very artistic and has done lots of creative artistic things in her past. I am also artistic. And I think in thinking of the concept of this place, there was always going to be art as part of the sort of foundation that holds it all together. It's the glue. And the residencies, we've 
tried to make them really accessible. So like for us, we feel like it's less about what are you producing when you're here? And it's more about like a creative process. So if a person wants to come and spend four days like looking at shells on the <laughs> beach and that is their inspiration for their art, like who are we to judge that? Creating rock piles. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And and we really like the idea that, because I think that there's a, a huge aspect to art, which is making and a huge amount of art and creative work, which is just about like thinking, brainstorming, drafting, editing, and that can take a long time. It's the sort of behind the scenes stuff that I think a lot of times artists, I know for myself, I sometimes will force myself to do something, even if it's bad, just to do something so that I have something to work on. So long story short is we try to create a space so that people can have the time to do whatever they need to do in their creative process to make their art. And that's, I think, an interesting take on a residency because the residencies that I'm familiar with, and I've only gone on one other residency, which was an art residency in Wilton, Connecticut, but there's usually an emphasis on creating work and there's usually, you know, some sort of presentation at the end. There's an exhibition, there's a product that needs to be made to show people, investors, you know, the residency is usually part of a nonprofit. So the board members need to see the value in the residency. And that usually looks like some sort of production, some sort of exhibition, you know, maybe pieces for sale and stuff like that and stuff that they can show off to the rest of the world. So that's what I think is special about this residency, which is that you understand that a lot of the creative process goes on inside the artist's head and there's planning involved and there's meditation stuff involved and there's just, you know, conceptual work that needs to be done to create work that is not visible to the outside world. It's like the, you know, behind the scenes mechanisms. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other thing too, is I think art is like a practice more than even, I mean, it's definitely a skill, but you get that skill by practicing. And so I love watching artist friends of mine who are just every day are like scribbling something on a piece of paper. And it's not about that piece. It's about the practice that they're doing. And so I think creating a space where people can work on their process, work on their practice, and kind of experiment with things is really important. Yeah, I think that you are 100% right. (laughs) If you are a woman who has recently been betrayed and are struggling with the roller coaster of emotions that accompanies discovery, you might want to check out the journal I created titled I Am Reclaiming Me, a betrayed partner's daily practice journal. I designed this full-color paperback journal to be a structured workbook for betrayed women to keep track of their recovery progress, assess their safety, and decide whether they want to stay in or leave their relationship. 
The book will launch this summer, but I'm accepting pre-orders for the book right now. The first 25 people to pre-order a book will get a signed edition. So please head to my website at badass-silverstreak.com backslash store to order your book now. I'm going to change the direction of the conversation a little bit. When I hadn't seen you in a long time and I first reached out to you about the residency, we met at a restaurant and just kind of touched base again and started talking about stuff. And one of the things that we talked about was parents. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) And so you know a little bit of history about my situation. I was a single child of my mom, and we had kind of a rough situation. She was basically poverty level for most of my childhood, even through, I would say, high school. I had a lot of struggles with that. My mom passed away 2014, and that was rough for me. And at the same time, there was kind of a distance between us at that moment in time. But my son was still underage, and she was having kind of a hard life with some health difficulties. She was actually living in the coast. She was living in Warrenton. Oh, wow. Yeah, super close to here. She was living in Warrenton, and then she had some major health issues. So there's this thing called the sandwich generation, which is a generation where the women of the family, so wives, are stuck in a position where we're in the middle, where we're tending to young children, and at the same time we have parents who are struggling with health issues and they are needing our attention as well. So I kind of went through that, not a major way, because my mom lived far away from me and she didn't have like incredibly debilitating health issues where I needed to be here all the time, although, I think she kept things secret from me, so I didn't know everything. But I know in your situation, you have raised kids and you still have a parent that is in need. And so you are basically still in that that sandwich. I am deep in the sandwich. <laughs> yes, um, so my son is 23, he still lives at home. Um, but he's very helpful and, you know, getting on with his life. My mother is, she has a lot of mental health issues and has for most of my childhood. It's hard to know exactly what's going on with her because she doesn't see doctors. But based on the therapist that she did go and see, she's probably bipolar, maybe schizophrenic, so, which would be schizoaffective or bipolar with features of like psychosis. So it's similar in any case. She goes through periods where she's really not doing very well and periods where she's doing better. So what prompted us, my sister and I and my uncle, to like want my mom to move to Portland, where I live, and she lives in a tiny house on my property, is she was living in just beyond horrible conditions. And similarly, she was keeping a lot of secrets. And just the more time that was going by, I was just realizing her basic needs are not being met. Like the bed she was sleeping on collapsed at one point. And 
the heat stopped working in her house and she had two working outlets in the whole place. And she has a lot of behaviors uh, like hoarding, et cetera, which would cause actually worse outcomes. So like she would put everything in a plastic bag, but then she wouldn't know it was in the plastic bags. And so then like rodents would come into like, just, I can't begin to tell you all of the things that were going wrong. At some point I just realized like, she can't manage things herself and she needs some more support. So no one in my family believed it was possible to get my mom to move to Portland, but we all thought that it was a good idea. So I really kind of led the charge and we would bring her groceries and we would do all these things. And I kept telling her like, okay, we're going to move you up in a couple of weeks. And she'd be like, okay, if I have enough energy and okay, if if I if I can. and then the day came, and the thing is, she loves her grandson. I mean, he's a very sweet kid. I mean, everybody loves my son. He's just one of those people that's very kind and gentle. You know, a grandmother loves her grandkids. So we just came down there and just scooped her up and took her to Portland. And, you know, overall, I think she's doing better. But, you know, the thing is, she's a very mentally ill person. She's never going to be like, okay, and now. She's living happily ever after. I mean, I guess she is living happily ever after, but it's not a version of happily ever after that I think most people would pick. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So I know that she has some mental issues that prevent her from accepting help from you and from other people. Do you think that if that wasn't the case, that there would be enough like government support to get her the help that she would need. Because I felt in my situation with my mom, there just wasn't really enough help for her. Yeah, I mean, that's a really hard question to answer. I'll say you're right. In my mom's case, there's a lot of things she's doing that's making it challenging to get her the help that she needs. But having said that, there's a lot of things that are really screwed up. Like, for example, she gets Social Security And I always forget if it's SSI or SSB or SS what it is. But she gets the Social Security that is eligible for people who, I mean, she does get a little bit for having worked, although she didn't work that much. But she gets money for basically being poor and old. And the way they run the program is just crazy. So, like, for example, she can't have more than $2,000 in her account ever or she'll be cut off from getting money. We have to work really hard at helping her spend her money each month so that she doesn't go over $2,000. Now, the crazy thing about this is the $2,000 limit was set back in 1970. Because in 1970, if you had over $2,000 in your account, you actually had a bunch of money in your account. But in today's day and age, 53 years later... right. That's nothing. Yeah, Yeah. that's kind of a long answer. I just don't think people really can get ahead because what if she needed something? Let's say she would go see a doctor and like her prescription or some kind of like thing that she needs to manage her care is not paid for by her insurance. Well, she wouldn't have the funds to buy that thing for herself on a regular basis or, Mm -hmm. or ever. I mean, So, no. And also, like, living in Portland, there's no place in Portland that you could live and spend $850 a month and still have extra money. The only way that 
it's working is that she lives on my property and my uncle had a super tiny house built for her. It's only 75 square feet. It is tiny. <laughs> But she wanted it that way. Uh -huh. it, it helps her with her hoarding tendencies. <laughs> so interesting story about my grandma, who also had hoarding tendencies. Mm -hmm. So my mom had to take care of my grandma when oh. she was older. And she was very eccentric. My grandma, she was an artist. And one of her husbands died. And she ended up inheriting some money. And she would just travel all over the place and just do crazy things like, she went to Grenada and started teaching art classes. You know, she's like, I'm just put on this hat of like, I'm an art teacher now. And then she started digging in the earth there and doing like archaeological digs. Wow. And finding stuff. Wow. For a museum that she <laughs> helped start. So she was a, from the 50s or earlier even. A time period where women were supposed to be in the house and expected to do certain things. She was like, fuck that noise. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to be a crazy old lady and I'm going to go travel the world and do stuff. Anyway, so that was her. She was eccentric. When she was older, she started to get dementia. She lived in a trailer. She had a separate tiny trailer for her doll parts. She would collect... She was very creative. She painted and she had her projects. And one of them was that she made dolls out of parts. And so she had her doll part trailer. She also had chickens and she had over 16 cats. And so my mom had to like deal with that situation while she was trying to raise me. So she was also in the sandwich. In the sandwich. And with cats and chickens. With cats and chickens <laughs> and a hoarding mom that she had to clean all the stuff out, find a place for her to live, you know, with like whatever she had left of the inheritance that she got. I just feel like that stuff tends to be in the hands of women oh, yeah. to take care of. Like you, as a woman, you have certain expectations and there's an expectation to take care of the kids, and then there's an expectation to take care of the parents, too, which leaves you with what time left to take care of yourself? What time is that to take care of yourself? And when you have time to take care of yourself, what do you give yourself permission to do? Like, what does that look like? Oh, you're asking me that question. Sure, what does oh. that look like? I'm like, oh, those are really good questions. <laughs> I don't know if I have really good answers for them. Well, uh, I'm not sure exactly when the meantime is going to be. The one thing I will say is that I, hmm, I feel like there's like five answers I could give. Let's, Let's try hear that. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, first of all, just kind of in terms of like birth order, I'm the eldest child. And so I think I have a bit of like, a maternal instinct that I've always had where I kind of want to help people and make sure everybody's mm. doing okay. So a little bit of that is just me. So that's like one piece of the puzzle. When I go home, I do really focus on myself. Like I have a really good home life in a lot of ways. Like my husband, he doesn't care if I cook dinner or not. He 
is happy to cook. when He likes cooking. He'll cook whenever. He doesn't care if the house is a mess. Because <laughs> you've I, been spending all your time right. cleaning at the end. I care. <laughs> I care. But he doesn't care. And my son is happy to pitch in and help with anything. And I have a sister that lives close by. So I do have a lot of support. So it's not just me just give like this endless giving tree to everyone in my life all the time. You know, like that's not the situation at all. Sometimes when I come home from the inn, I spend like the whole next day in bed because I'm tired and I binge some Netflix or Hulu or whatever thing. So I do get me time. I think, though, there's kind of maybe a larger question that I was hearing in that, which is like not about on a day-to-day basis, but in sort of a life way. When is it my time? And that's a really good question because I do feel like I have given a lot of myself to other people for the majority of my life. Yeah. Um, when I was a kid, I was helping out with my family. Mm-hmm. When I was in, like, probably... The only time I wasn't really doing that is maybe in my teens, in like early 20s. And then the rest of the time I have given to others in some capacity or another. And women tend to be givers. Yes. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, I might be a lady who lives in a trailer with another trailer with doll parts. And like, you guys just have to deal with it. And now I'm going on an archaeological dig. And sorry, (laughs) that's what I'm doing. (laughs) Don't know. I don't know. (laughs) But you do know that you're not going to be the giving tree that's cut down to a nubbin. No, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And I mean, I do think I work really hard at trying to like replenish myself and take the me time that I need so that I'm not just like a little sad stump. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody wants to be a little sad stump. No, no. So what have you given yourself permission to do after you turned 50 that you never did when you were younger? I have an answer for that. I feel like I have a good answer for that. I feel like when I was younger, I spent a lot of time trying to convince everybody that I was happy and okay all the time. And like, not that I'm not happy or not okay, because I think I am pretty happy and okay, maybe more happy and okay now. But I'm really comfortable with, I don't like this, or this doesn't work for me, or talking about things that might be awkward, but they're important to be said. I actually just wrote a post on Facebook the other day about the Girl Scouts, and I'm not knocking the Girl Scouts at all. I think, you know, good program, all that. But it was basically just talking about how my own experience was I never was a Girl Scout. I didn't really even know anybody who was a Girl Scout, and I didn't have that experience. And so to me, growing up, I was like, well, Girl Scouts are about, like, I guess, cookies and badges. I don't know what else they're about. And then later, kind of through friends, realized it was like this whole thing about, like, women's empowerment and learning skills and bonding with other females and all these things that I had no idea that the Girl Scouts were about. And I went into this whole thing about how, because the cookie thing, like people are always like, buy the cookies, buy the cookies, buy the cookies, and parents are promoting it. And it reminded me of this whole situation that happened to me when I was in band when I was young. If we sold a certain number of candles, we would get this grand prize. And the grand prize was you got to go 
to this amusement park and it was like a vacation and I was like, I'm going to win it. And I didn't win it. I walked around my neighborhood and gotten all these people to agree to buy these kind of dumb candles. (laughs) And I lost this sheet that I had all of the people's information on. And why did I lose the sheet? Because my house was really chaotic and messy and I couldn't keep track of things. Uh, My mom couldn't keep track of things. And I was a kid. How was I supposed to keep track of things? And like the girl that ended up winning, like her mom worked in an office and she had a really big family. And so like her mom had been selling, going to the neighbors and Mm -hmm. like the grandparents had bought one for everyone in the family. And she had sold something like 600 candles. And I was like, so bummed out. And I remember the band teacher like taking me aside and being like, how come you don't have your form? And I was like, I lost my form. And he kind of chastised me. Oh, other people might not buy candles for the band in the future because like you've shown yourself to be unreliable. And anyway, long story short is I kind of posted this thing about how I feel like there's an aspect of Girl Scouts that has kind of an inherent privilege and the people that Mm -hmm. get ahead and win the prizes have a lot of family involvement. And I don't think there's anything wrong with parents being involved, but how do we equalize the playing field so that everybody has an opportunity to participate and win sometimes? And I'm sure there's people that are so pissed at me because they're like, she hates the Girl Scouts, which, of course, that's not at all what I was saying. Right. Um, but I feel like I'm much more comfortable with saying things that a person might be as uncomfortable because that makes them question their own place in life in a way that I don't think I was comfortable with. And I think I am a person that's pretty interested in issues around mental health and poverty and just inequality in general, like the haves and the have-nots. And I talk about those things. And I think that's something that I thought about when I was younger. And I knew I had opinions about it, but I think I held back a little bit more because I felt more shame. I felt more, like the older I've gotten, the more I'm like, I did nothing but be born to have those experiences. (laughs) Like, I have zero ownership in that, you know? I mean, I guess I, I I own it to the extent that it's my experience, but not in like a like cause and effect kind of way, you right. know? Yeah. I mean, I think that the shame aspect is pretty interesting, though, because coming from poverty myself, I had a lot of shame wrapped around it. And there oh, yeah. was a long time where I was a pretender. There were times in high school where... I think it was like 16 Candles or one of those movies where she's like, oh, no, you can drop me off here. I'll just walk home. I'll just walk. That was literally me. I would, you know, parents would be like, oh, Lorna, where's your house? I'd be like, oh, you can just drop me off right here. It's really close. I'm just, you know. Oh, yeah. Or I have to go to the store first. I'll just do that. So I totally get that. The, The shame and poverty and like having to deal with like a weird parent that a like you can't parent, explain. An alcoholic parent <laughs> yeah. that, like and the shack that I live in that has the washing machine out in the backyard. Yeah. And we don't have a dryer, so we've got these lines that we have to like still have all of our clothes hanging out to dry. Yeah. Even in the winter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so that's 
all reasons I feel really comfortable talking about it now is like I refuse to feel ashamed of having been poor and maybe being like an advocate for people who maybe advocates an overstatement, but like I'm definitely a voice that is like speaking about, like I said, mental illness, poverty. These are the subjects that come up again and again in conversations. I I write about it periodically on various social platforms and they're things I think about a lot. Mm -hmm. So have you ever had anyone really like the haters come and attack you for anything that you've said? Mostly not. Uh, mostly it's been very positive. I'll say that. Every so often I do feel like there's something like one woman said to me the other day after I posted the thing about the Girl Scout situation, she said something like, you know, I think everyone's had an experience like that. And those are the experiences that give us grit and grit is good and like helps us <laughs> to be stronger and blah, blah, blah. And I said, you know, I don't even disagree that people get grit from, you know, hardships. Yeah. Complicated <laughs> situations that are hard to navigate. But like I could have gotten grit from a lot of different right. things. Yeah. And learning about inequality and privilege was not that awesome and it would have been very cool if like other people in power adults around me had identified that and found ways to level the playing field a little bit more i still would have been plenty gritty if with yeah. lots of experiences <laughs> with <you> all <laughs> of the other traumatizing experiences in your life yeah yeah so i had the same situation with having to sell the well, cookies for mm -hmm. it wasn't for Girl Scouts. It was for some sort of like other school related thing. Maybe it was mm -hmm. like theater or art or I don't remember what it was. But yeah, being in the same position where I'm a, you know, only child of a single mom who is at poverty level with just my grandma who's a hoarder and lives in a trailer. So not going to win any prizes here. Yeah. Yeah. Don't really have enough uh, backing to be successful in the cookie sales. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and my mom could only, you know, buy a certain number of cookies for us. Right. <laughs> what do you think your family or friends would say are your most badass qualities? Oh, <laughs> Uh, well, my son said not that long ago, like, you're the kind of person who just kind of believes you can do something, whether you can or not, and you just figure out how to do it. And I was like, that is true about me. And I thought, that is a really good compliment. <laughs> it is. Yeah, because then you just have a dream and you don't worry about if it's going to fail or be successful I think I do, or like if you do. I think I do worry, but I'm already way too far along in the process. I'm the same way. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, when I had the betrayal happen to me, my husband, May 7th of last year, that was the impetus for me to just give myself permission to stop working for other people and start my own business. I had no idea what it's going to look like, all the components to it, how much it was going to cost, just nothing. I was like, I'm 
I'm just going to start a podcast. And I found a person to help me with that. I still don't know like all of the the back end stuff that needs to happen to get su- successful. Um, I was like, I'm going to write a book and I'm going to put out some activewear. I was just going to make it happen. And I think that it's that like kind of like Wild West spirit. Yes. Yes. That you have to have and you have to. And I think that it's helpful to come actually from a place of childhood trauma where you had parents that didn't set limitations on you in that in those areas where you just are like, I don't know. I don't know how to do it. I'm just I'm creative. I'm just going to figure it out. Totally. You know, actually, it's interesting because one of the things that I've come to, because when I was young, I was, okay, well, when I was very young, I think I didn't have a concept of anyone's family. So my family was normal, weird, but normal. Then I got older and I thought I just had the worst childhood and the worst parent parenting situation. And just like for a long time felt very like kind of just sad about what had happened to me and what's been weird for me in the last however many years is I've realized that there's just a really big difference between let's say benign neglect which I experienced a lot of Mm -hmm. and abuse and I don't think my mother like she may have done things that were not good for us on many occasions but she wasn't abusive. And I think also probably a product of being like a child of the 70s too. Right. We really had a lot of freedom to do what we want. Like nobody knew what we were up to for 12 hours of the day. Because we were latchkey kids. We were latchkey kids. And like my mom was not around. And also when she was around, she was very vacant. Like she was busy thinking about her own stuff. and. Mm-hmm trying to figure her own stuff out. And so I was kind of left to my own devices. And kind of the opposite, the way kids are raised today. Yeah, it's the total opposite. And I wonder slash worry about people who have been so like hyper managed and like helicoptered around. How do you develop your own anything? If someone has been sort of dictating what mm-hmm. your, what the sport you like is, you know right. what I mean? Yeah. Like, you're um, not given the space and the time to like cultivate who you are right. as an individual because their parents and society dictating like, oh, you need to be picked up exactly after school and taken to all of these different activities. And when you're done with the activities, then you're scheduled to like go home and do homework from this time to this time. And then it's like, maybe you've got an hour's worth of right. free time. Right. I'm using the air quotes. Um, and then, you know, it's dinner and then it's bedtime. So, but in our day and age, like I know what you mean by the latchkey kid and the having all the time because, yeah, I mean, like I was dropped off in the school bus, I lived in the country just dropped off in the woods, had to walk up the hill to my house where I would be alone for pretty much from like three o'clock till seven o'clock or something like that. Mm-hmm. Fending for myself, trying to like get some like kind of an after school snack. There's my dog going out into the woods playing in the 
field or wherever with my Barbies and stuff like that, just like fantasy land, just um, imagining mm-hmm. who I was and like thinking about my friends and imagining what I was going to be like in the future and like a lot of time to just play and be by myself and also navigate what it's like to take care of myself. And I imagine, you know, if you have siblings, you're trying to like take care of each other Mm -hmm. and stuff. So it's very different than nowadays where um, if kids are left alone, they get reported to the police. The parents get reported to the police. Well, you know, the other thing too, and I mean, this is an entire other topic, but I can remember as a kid when I was bored was when I was like learning totally new things. So like I taught myself to crochet when I was like seven. Why? Because I was bored and I had some yarn. Yes, bored. Like I don't think kids today have much opportunity to be bored. Mm -hmm. I'm a person because I was always able to find things to do. I'm still like that. Like I can't imagine feeling bored because I can always find something to do because there's always a hundred other things to do. Well, you can look inside yourself and just create right something to do. I mean, even if it's like cooking something I've never made before, like there's always a thing I can do. I'm not bored. And so when I hear like my niece will be like, I'm so bored. And I'm like, I feel like it's so much a state of mind. Yeah. Well, I mean, also, I feel like society goes so much faster now. Everything is so fast. Just the speed of technology and television shows and and the sheer quantity of all of the entertainment items available to people. That just wasn't our reality when we were younger. Mm -hmm. And so we spent a lot of time, I don't know about you, but just staring out the window. Yep. (laughs) But yeah. it was good enough. It was good enough. <laughs> it has been such a privilege to have you on my podcast. And I feel like there's so much more that we could talk about, especially having to do with childhood trauma and coming out of that. No. But maybe we can have another episode dedicated to that. Sure. Uh, yeah. yeah. Down the road sometime. For now, I want to thank you and ask you if there's anything that you would like to plug as far as art stuff or the Starry Night Inn or the residency or anything else you've got going on? Yeah, sure. Starry Night Inn is a six-unit inn. We have three Victorian rooms upstairs in our Victorian lodge. We have three cabins that are mid-century modern that go run along the side of the Victorian. We have a spa in the back, which is infrared sauna, full body massage chair, and two outdoor soaking tubs. We have art throughout the inn. As you mentioned, we do artist residencies in the off-season. We're doing something that's pretty unique. The feedback we get often is that the attention to detail and sort of the artistic flair is something special. So maybe come check us out if you'd like. Definitely check it out because I am super comfortable in number two here of the cabins. And we're sitting here on the floor having some wine in front of the fire place. It's not on right now, but the flick of a switch, it could be on. (laughs) (laughs) 
So I highly recommend coming here. And thanks again for joining me for the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of I Am My Passion Project. New episodes drop every Friday. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing with a friend or two or more or leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, I hope you're able to move through your week, speaking your own truth and embracing your badass self. I am my passion project. Yeah.